Warning, this show is about true crime and its contents may not be appropriate for children. This is the Crimecasters Network with Alicia Sophias and Ronnie Dahl, two rogue reporters breaking newsroom rules to take you behind the crime scene tape. We're getting inside the head of a murder mastermind on the 30th anniversary of his unthinkable crime. The headline shocked Central California, and even today, people have so many questions. Questions we will try to answer today. This is the case of the Yule Family Massacre. On Easter weekend 1992, in a picture-perfect neighborhood in Sunnyside, inside a picture-perfect house, lie a once picture-perfect family, bloody and dead. The victims are Dale and Glee Yule and their 24-year-old daughter, Tiffany. Their 21-year-old son, Dana, was on the coast that weekend, so he was the sole survivor and now stood to inherit the family's massive fortune. Sunnyside is an upscale neighborhood in Fresno County, and the Yules could more than afford to live there. At the heart of this story is the prodigal son of the family, Dana. Good looks, genius IQ, and at only 21, almost too successful to believe. Let's start there. Here are some headlines from November of 1990 that sound more like the loglines of made-for-TV movies. Teen mogul tries for normal college life. Millionaire lives quiet dorm life at Santa Clara. And the one from Dana's Santa Clara University yearbook, Flying High on Wall Street. Oh, the troubles of a teen, right? (laughs) Here's part of an article that ran in the San Jose Mercury News, which was the newspaper for the who's who of Silicon Valley. On a recent Friday afternoon at Santa Clara University, while other students roamed through campus clad in T-shirts, shorts, and sweats, that would have been me, Yule, a sophomore majoring in finance, was dressed in a shiny gray suit, bright red tie, and elegant striped shirt, complete with gold cufflinks. He's the dormitory resident who drives around town in a gold Mercedes with a license plate that reads, Yule C.O. But marching to a different drum is something Yule has always done. At age 19, he's a self-made millionaire who amassed his fortune playing the stock market, running two companies, and selling mutual funds. I mean, that's pretty impressive, Ronnie, because I think I, in fact, I know I was trying to get an unpaid internship at 19 years old. And I have (laughs) to wonder, too, because we're talking about 1990, not today in the age of the internet, but what kind of companies can a teenager actually run back then? Well, apparently aircraft companies. So that ran on the 21st, which was the day before Thanksgiving. Just imagine how proud his parents and sister would be when he came home for the holiday. Like, I can see him bringing a bunch of copies because maybe his parents want to frame that. That's frameworthy. But that's not how it turned out at all because that article and all of the others like it 
full of a bunch of lies. Yes, Dana had the fancy clothes and car, but the business was his dad's. And the money he used to buy all of those things, you guessed it, thanks to mommy and daddy. Needless to say, things were super awkward at the dinner table that Thanksgiving. It especially didn't sit well with his dad, Dale. Dale was the actual self-made millionaire but he was not flashy like his son. And when you learn more about his background, you'll understand why, because Dale was born during the Great Depression to a farming family in Ohio. So his childhood was full of responsibilities and good old-fashioned hard work, salt-of-the-earth people. He was expected to earn his keep. He did leave the farm at age 18. He went to college and graduated with an aeronautical engineering degree. Pretty impressive for someone who came off of a farm, right? Then he went into the military, the Air Force. He created an aircraft business in Central California, helping provide aircrafts to farmers. So it's in his wheelhouse. Nothing was ever handed to him. That's probably why when his teenage son went on a press tour to take all the credit for his blood, sweat, and tears, he wasn't too happy. And who could blame him? But Alicia, I have to wonder, we're reporters. How did the article even get printed? Hello, fact checkers. I was just going to say, fact checkers. I mean, I can't even imagine. So actually the reporter for the San Jose Mercury News was, because that's big paper. That's an impressive, respected paper. Not the college paper, right? No, I mean, the yearbook, I I bet, I think I put a couple things in the yearbook that were a little stretch also to try to make myself sound smarter. Uh, But that paper, no, Silicon Valley. I mean, I'm talking now like Facebook execs, Twitter execs, they all read that. So she was interviewed later and she said Dana walked in, had a whole press packet He had the financial statements. He was dressed like he always was. He wore Armani suits to college classes. So he had the gold Mercedes. Of course, I mean, he was just taking credit for his dad's hard work. And there doesn't seem to be too many repercussions after this for Dana because he keeps attending Santa Clara. He keeps driving the Benz and he keeps getting a fat allowance. But his parents are on to him now and he knows it. Dana doesn't have many real friends, but he does have an unlikely bond with a fellow dorm mate, Joel Radovich, who is visually Dana's polar opposite. I mean, Joel is sloppy. He's like, remember the skater types back then with the bleached, dirty looking, messy hair? He had wrinkled clothes. He was literally the least preppy guy on campus. It's how they earned the nickname, The Odd Couple. Dana's girlfriend, Monica Zent, is much more refined. It's 1992 now, and their relationship is getting serious. They think it would be nice for their families to spend time together leading up to Easter weekend. And what better place to do that than the beach house? Yes, the Yule's Beach House on the Central Coast, beautiful. Glee and Tiffany drive there, but Dale decides to travel his favorite way. He flies his plane. The Yules and the Zents spend Easter Eve together discussing their children's bright futures and having a great time. Dana is going on a trip with the Zents after this, but the Yules head back to Sunnyside on Easter Sunday. Little do they know what evil is waiting for them inside their home. I have to say it's kind of hard for me to imagine because I'm from Ohio, a blue-color family. My second car is not a plane. 
It's a smart car. Yes. And he had a <laughs> lot of planes and several houses and, uh, you know, different crops and oh, fields. So, yeah. So much going. <laughs> yes. For Dana. Now, let's get back to the story, though. Glee and Tiffany get there first. They arrive home. It seems like they walked in and Glee took a moment to relax before unpacking the car. We all do that. She sits on the chair in the living room. Tiffany is walking near the kitchen when a gunman leaps out and shoots her in the head. He then attacks Glee. She's still in the living room, shooting her multiple times until she dies. 30 minutes later, Dale arrives. He's landed his plane. He stopped by work first. So he walks in with a handful of mail. And just like his wife and daughter, he's shot to death with a bullet in the back of the head. We can only hope he didn't know what happened. The gunman sneaks out of the house, takes off. Neighbors never saw a thing. The bloody crime scene stayed just like that for two days until the Ewell's house cleaner discovered Tiffany's body and ran out in horror. Ironically, Dana had just called his neighbor to go check on his parents, too. He couldn't get a hold of them, and he was worried. Sunnyside is in the jurisdiction of the Fresno County Sheriff's Department, so that's who showed up, and that's how the crime that shocked the community came to be. Very quickly, rumors started swirling. Glee had worked for the CIA for a few years. Could that be connected? And Dale, remember, had the aviation business. Was he transporting drugs for the cartel? Detectives shut down those conspiracy theories, but they were developing their own suspicion about someone, and this one is a lot closer to home. Investigators generally take a critical look at the person or people who would benefit the most from a crime, and in this case, there was no contest. It was Dana. He had an airtight alibi. He was with the Zents. Oh, and Ronnie, did I mention Monica's dad, John, was an FBI agent? Alibis do not get any stronger than that. That's a pretty strong alibi. But from the beginning, it didn't matter that Dana had that alibi because detectives didn't like the way he was acting. Sure, he may have just been in shock. We've heard it a million times over the years from so many defense attorneys. There is no right way to act after a tragedy. Yes. Everyone acts differently, Alicia. Yes. But in this case, Dana didn't seem overly upset that his whole family was dead. Even when detectives took him into the crime scene so he could walk them through the layout of the house, he barely blinked at all of the blood on the walls. How do you not break down at that? Exactly. Like I said, BS. And at the funerals, well, same story pretty much. They say he acted more like a politician than a grieving son, shaking hands and doling out compliments. He had no tears, no sadness. His uncles even noticed, too. They didn't like that Dana had no emotion after the murders. No emotion until the reading of the will, that is. Remember the family fortune? It was about $8 million, and it was all about to be Dana's, or so he thought. But he got a huge surprise. His parents had set it up so that Dana wouldn't get much of anything until he was 25, then more when he turned 30, and the rest when he turned 35. According to his uncle, Dana leapt out of his chair, pounded the table, and yelled, why would my dad do that to me? Add to that, he took a break from school and moved back into the house. 
that still had evidence of the murders. There were bloodstains and chunks of the wall gone from where detectives cut out the bullet holes. The Fresno Bee reported that Dana tried to step into his father's shoes right away. He went into Dale's office. He tried to run the company, and he even swapped out his briefcase for his late father's. For money, he did have access to some money that wasn't associated with the trust. It was upwards of $800,000. Not very much to him, though. Dana was living the high life, and guess who was by his side? Even living in the family home with him. Joel Radovich. Gotta be kidding. Oh, So eventually Dana goes back to school, and Joel moved to Southern California. But two detectives with the sheriff's office were convinced the pair was guilty of murder, they weren't letting up. So over a three-year period, they studied bank statements, ATM withdrawals, phone records. They even pulled deputies from the drug unit to tail the two. They listened to their payphone calls, remember those days? Interrogated their friends and classmates, even cloned Joel's pager. I remember those days. Their theory was that Dana convinced his buddy to kill his family so they could split the millions. They had evidence of suspicious phone calls and money transfers between the two. Also, Dale's ammunition found at the crime scene was now linked to the gun that killed him. But they still did not have the actual murder weapon. Then they got a break. They tracked down one of Joel's friends, Ernest Jack Ponce, and grilled him. They could immediately tell he was hiding something big, but he wouldn't crack. That's when detectives decided to do something that you have to see to believe. They took rolls of huge paper and made a timeline of everything they knew so far and when it happened. They used colored markers to denote the key players, and when they were done... It was 100 feet long, Ronnie. That's the size of a 10-story building. It was overwhelming. And even to the prosecutor, it was, who agreed now to press charges for Dana, Joel, and Jack, who detectives now called the Three Stooges. They thought it would force one of the weak links to talk, and they were right. In exchange for immunity, Jack admits He was the one who bought the murder weapon, a 9mm pistol. But he didn't know it was going to be used in a crime after the fact, he said. And he learned what happened. That Joel lied in wait that Easter Sunday, then shot and killed the Yule family. And it was all orchestrated by Dana. Jack agreed to dispose of the murder weapon after Joel pleaded with him to help. They dismantled the gun and Jack threw out pieces of evidence in various garbage cans in Southern California, including the gun and pieces of tennis balls, which had been used as a homemade silencer. Jack was a free man, but he did have to testify against Joel and Dana. Both men went on trial together in Fresno County. It lasted months, during which everyone learned more about the horrific crime the $8 million motive, and why there were no fingerprints and no DNA at the crime scene. Because, listen to this, Joel had shaved his body head to toe before entering the house. He also laid out a plastic sheet that he sat on while waiting for the family to come home and wore layers of latex gloves when he shot them. The alarm on the house, of course, never went off because Joel had the cold, thanks to his friend Dana. 
Neither of them took the stand in their own defense. And on May 12, 1998, more than six years after the crime, a jury found Dana Ewell and Joel Radovich guilty of three counts of murder with special circumstances. That means they were eligible for the death penalty. Ultimately, jurors were deadlocked on the death sentence, so a judge gave them three lifetime without parole sentences. As for the money, it went to other family members. After the conviction, Dana told the court, I loved my family with all my heart and soul, and he wishes he could get up and walk away and that his family would be there waiting for him. He is now serving his time at Corcoran State Prison in California, a tough prison, home to the Golden State Killer, Charles Manson when he was alive, Sirhan Sirhan, so some bad dudes. For someone who had the whole world on a silver platter to go from that to this life, what could he be thinking? I've been corresponding with Dana from prison for nearly a year. I brought his letters to Dr. Karen Holt, a psychologist in the criminal justice department at Michigan State University. Her insights into Dana's life, crime, and time behind bars are next. You're listening to Crimecasters Network. We are now joined by Dr. Karen Holt, who is a professor at the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan State University, my alma mater. Feels good to be back on campus. <laughs> Thanks for having us today. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. All right, let's dive right in. I have told you about Dana Ewell. You know he is serving a life without parole sentence at Corcoran. However, you probably would never know it based on what you're going to see. So are you ready to dive in? I am so ready to dive okay, in. Okay, let's do it. You already saw something through the envelope. What I, was that? So I was going to point out the 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 you know the personalized um, label that he has, right, which is to me like very interesting again. Oh wow. So it's got <laughs> it's even got, you know, like the landscapes there, um, which you know is, is very definitely saying that sense of like a, of status and like that presentation of self, like the minute that you receive the letter. I reached out to him because I reach out to every prisoner that we're doing a story about, mm -hmm. um, just to see if they've maybe had a change of heart. Obviously this happened 30 years ago. And uh, one of the first things he does is write, hello Alicia and greetings from Corcoran Prison. I received your letter on Friday and apologize for the delay in the mail room. I'm grateful to meet you and thank you for taking the initiative to write. I did a double take on your name because I'm familiar with your career at KMPH and wanted to write you a letter after reading your book on the Wesson case to encourage your empathy for the survivors. I bought and later donated it to the prison library and I congratulate you on your journalistic reporting on a difficult subject. You are familiar with several people I knew and worked with in the criminal courts. It's interesting first because you have the double take, he's showing you how knowledgeable he is, right? Like of the things that are going on outside of the prison. Um, he re he's well read, right? Like I'm reading your book on the Wesson case. So he's showing you like, this is the knowledge that I have. And so I love the idea of like, I bought and later donated this to the prison library. So even in prison, he's got these resources and you know, he's, and is this, not only does he have these resources, but he's using these to help other people by like provide like, I have these resources and so I'm gonna donate this book to the library, that he's still important, right? That there's a level of importance and a level of status that he still has 
despite being incarcerated, which I think is very interesting. In the next paragraph, I didn't know you had moved to Orange County and then back to your home state. Like he somehow is aware of everything that's happening. To me, that kind of hit me. I'm in control and I'm gonna let you know that you know I know this about you. I think that's a very deliberate move a power move is what I would say. He talked a little more. I have a couple of dear friends in Clinton Township, not far from you, and I visited the Henry Ford Museum in Greenfield Village in Dearborn one summer during our annual trips to Wellington, Ohio to visit my grandparents. Now remember, he is convicted of killing his entire family. Mm -hmm. So the idea that he has these great memories and is going back and telling me about memories he had of wonderful trips to visit his grandparents with his family. What does that tell you? It's almost as though he's setting up, again, this idea of this perfect, this picture-perfect family, right, that he, and like being, you know, he's here because he's innocent, obviously, right, and look at all of these fabulous memories he has, and look at the family, he's talking about family and emphasizing the family trips, right, so he's a good family person. Um, I love that the he says, you know, I saw my first prayer for you, too, and encouraging, you know, again, he's making this about him, like there's just a sense of narcissism that definitely comes through, um, and wanting to encourage you, you know, is yeah. that like, you, here's this person who's incarcerated, um, who killed his entire family, but he's he's the good guy, right? Letting you know um, because he's he and he's here for you. More than anything, I want to encourage you in any way I can. My number one motivation. He's selfless. He just wants to help you. You know, he's with what? <laughs> what do you think he wants to help me with? Every time he sends a letter, he includes some comics that he has chosen, and he writes little notes. What about the smiley faces? That's fascinating. So in awe of, he does do a lot of smiley faces and the ha. He's saving these for you. It's important. He's got a sense of humor. He's like a good guy. He's like a fun kind of, right? Like he, he likes jokes. He likes comics. He has access to these things while he's incarcerated. This is so, like something, I just keep thinking of my great aunt used to do this for me. <laughs> like, so yeah, she would cut my out grandma these comments. Did this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So again, this sense of like family, right? Like this says a sense of like, this is something, going back to the idea of being this good family person. Like I almost feel like this is consistent with that. How could someone who does this ever kill their family? Like look how intimate they are, but it's not, it's not a real, it's almost like he's looking at a, you know, he's trying to mirror like what real intimacy would look like. And in his mind or like doing something like this, um, that, that would be like something you do with family or someone you're friends with. He's in Corcoran prison, which is a tough, tough prison. It's one of the toughest in the country. Mm -hmm. So he's not having a good life. He can't be having a good life. And that brings us to this, which I found strange, which was in one of the last uh, letters over the holidays. Okay. This was over the holidays. Happy Thanksgiving, Alicia. I came home late last night from a road trip to the West Coast capital of country music, Bakersfield. It was another fun adventure from my perspective, and I hadn't traveled anywhere since before COVID. Stopping at a gas station, we had a nice time with a cute dog that kept coming up to every car that pulled in. He belonged to a woman sitting in front of the mini mart accepting handouts from drivers. The CDCR officer driving the van I was in gave the woman some money too, which was nice. 
After my appointment, we were driving through downtown Bakersfield, cranking up the country music with people walking about. It felt very festive with white Christmas lights on the storefronts. We also parked in a busy shopping center while the officers ate their fast food. I loved every minute of it, and it was a full moon on the way home. Spending time in the real world, even if just for a day, is a real gift, and I'm thankful for road trips like that on occasion. Have a joyful holiday. That's so interesting. First of all, like he's a peer to these, like the officers. You know, like they're all just out hanging out. Is what kind of the vibe you get? Um, again, it's the, like the holidays and just enjoying the sights. And it's just a very interesting kind of framing. Probably he was sitting in the back, you know, like in handcuffs while the officers were up front. Um, but this is fascinating because it makes it sound as though we're taking this trip together. So I think he's establishing here these boundaries between who he thinks he is, right? And then these other, the convicts or the guilty incarcerated individuals. Why is it so important to Dana Yule to put on this front that everything is fine? I just get ego, ego, ego from this, you know, and, nar and narcissism. And so protecting the idea of status and the idea of, the, again, you know, there's a sense of, of denial um, and compartmentalization. This is someone who's interested in impression management and like making sure that it's all about him and who he wants you to think that he is. Let's keep uh, moving through these. Religion is very important to Dana Ewell now. You definitely get that sense everywhere. So he often sends Bible verses. Um, oh my gosh, sorry. <laughs> I was just reading the notes. Just read that out loud. A favorite Rembrandt painting, which was stolen from an art museum in Boston and not yet recovered. Interesting. Again, just the idea of like he's educated, right? He's um, he knows about art. He's right, like this very like the idea of being cultured in some way. It's all about me, and I'm knowledgeable. And look at how intelligent I am. You believe that it's he's still kind of fronting. Is that this? Yeah. Is this just a perpetuation of what he was doing in college? This is what definitely, I would say this is a perpetuation of what he's doing in college, except he's stepped it up kind of next level because <laughs> after killing your entire family, you would have to take it to the, you know, like the next level. Why do so many serial killers and mass murderers suddenly find God? So that's a great question. And so when you're incarcerated, I think, you know, there's not a lot else to find, right? So I guess like there's, for some people, I think, that it can be a way to live with what they've done. So for, the, I mean, there are people who do feel remorse, right? There are people who do feel guilt. And I know- You're um, not getting a lot of remorse here. No, not here, not at all. Like I don't buy this for a minute. I think this is a way again, to make himself feel more powerful. I mean, he knows that you are a reporter, like he knows you're a journalist. So he's also, he knows that all of this, like, again, like I feel as though this is him signaling to you and he, this idea that if he sends all of this, like you're going to talk about what a good guy he is. Look at all of these good, these wonderful things that he's sending to you. I mean, so how could someone, how could someone like this kill their entire family? In the cards, he does sometimes acknowledge the fact that he's in prison. Mm -hmm. So he's not just completely ignoring it, but it's almost like he romanticizes it. So I want to, I want to get your opinion. like. Dear Alicia, hello, they just put us on lockdown to go search another building. So it's a good time to take a break. Mm -hmm. It's like almost, that has to be a chaotic situation. Yeah. But he's using it to write in the most perfect penmanship mm -hmm. I've ever seen, 
a beautiful card. Right. So I just picture like chaos going on around him and him sitting at his desk inside his cell just like with a ruler and a pen and writing this beautiful card. Yeah. Uh, it was gorgeous outside this morning during my yard time. Had the place to myself for a workout and tennis against the wall. F-18s from Lemoore Naval Air Station buzzed overhead, which is always fun, enjoying the sunrise sunsets and cloud formations and lots of aircraft flying overhead is a blessing to me here. We ate the first cantaloupe from our garden last night and another, another watermelon. watermelon. So to really close out the too, weekend. To close out the weekend. <laughs> it sounds like they, they're at like a like Resort. a party. Yeah. <laughs> like a, well, we ate the cantaloupe and then we ate this watermelon and this from the garden. Day from, from the garden. The garden. Like fresh from the garden, right? Um, we playing tennis. Playing tennis. Yeah. So it's again that kind of like keeping Airplanes up appearing like overhead. This idea, this of, I of like there's his experience, right? And his experience is different than other everyone else's. else's. Yeah, because he's special. You're telling him you want to write about like the crimes and what happened to his family, and he's making that you know he's taking control of the narrative here. Even if he wanted to claim that he's innocent, he could still talk about his family. He could talk about his mother and his father and how much he misses them. Um, and, and he doesn't do any of that. Like he doesn't talk about it's the holidays. You would think if your family members were brutally murdered and you weren't the person who did it, um, that, that would be a difficult time, right? And so when, when you specifically said, I wanna talk about these things, you know, him talking about it in a way that, you know, yeah, it was so painful. This is like, I lost my entire family, like, and I'm by myself now and I'm in prison for it. Um, even like that to me would be better than like what he does here because here it's just it's it's all him it's all him and in and no place it, it, no there's nowhere in here where he's like taking any responsibility um and i i would never let him out of prison like i would never want him on the streets um because this is all like i said it's all about him and how do i use people and how do i like signal to people who i am before we wrap up i want to know if you could ask him any questions, what are your questions for him? What do you want to know? Oh my gosh, where do we start? Tell me about that day. Tell me about what happened. Um, tell me, you know, I would want him to, I would really want to hear from him who did, like, who did this? Well, right? I tried, <laughs> but I got, I got pictures of cabins back, so I don't think I he's... think he would have to be, and it would be interesting to see that he has time here, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's taking time. This all this takes time. And so he has the ability to craft these narratives like in a very controlled way. But I think if you sat down with him, I would be interested to see like what that interaction looks like. I would be so curious to see if he could keep this this manicured kind of um, persona going or if it would be because you would be able to challenge him immediately and I think if you challenged him immediately it wouldn't be all this right it would be some of this but I think you'd get a better a better read on who he actually is he says that being real trust is everything and I hope for that with you many blessings to you Alicia Dana and I would yeah so my counter would be you know I like I feel so honored that you have done all of this for me. I feel so honored that you have said all these prayers and gone out of your way to like to, to send me these 
these uplifting comics and the smiley faces and the way, you know, this thank you and to connect with me about my home state. I just, this was so, you know, I feel honored that you did all of this. My approach, yeah, would be to like really take what he's given you and, and then use that. Okay, so you've talked about trust and faith and, and God and, and so, and, and listening, right? And so I would really love to hear kind of like what, what the story is I, for, to honor your family because God talks about honoring our parents, right? And honoring, and, and I see your clear relationship with God and I see what a religious devout man you are. Like, can you talk to me? I know that it's gonna be painful, right? So can you talk to me about your family? Like, can you open up? Like, can we have that dialogue now that we've established this and I understand who you are and what a good person you are? Um, I would really play up that if I were going to talk to him. That's what I would do. Well, he seems to have access to everything, so he'll probably um, see you saying that and, and won't believe it. But, I, would um, love, I would love to sit down and chat if he would have me. In all seriousness, we appreciate your insight. It does give us, this was such an impactful crime in Central California. Yeah. I know people from all over the country still talk about it today because, you know, Dana Ewell was kind of an image of what we all thought we would want for our lives. Yeah. And then this happened. Um, and his family is not here anymore because of his greed. So I appreciate you for, for doing this again on the 30th anniversary of this horrible crime. And, and I do hope that someday he accepts responsibility. Yeah. I think we're all waiting yeah. for that. that. That's initially why I reached out. Yeah. I had hope that he would. So thank you so much for being yeah, with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. Continue the conversation with your hosts, Alicia and Ronnie, on any of your favorite social media platforms. Find us at Crimecasters, and let's talk true crime. What an interesting interview, right? We have interviewed so many people as reporters, but I learned so much from her insights. So I want to take literally every letter I've gotten from every prisoner to her. I'm like, you will be getting a lot of our calls because she did really lay it out there. And we did do a much more extensive interview. We'll put all of that on YouTube with the video so you can kind of see the letters, the cards, the prayer cards, the comics, the pictures. <sighs> So, of course, this is the part of the show where we go off script and have the conversations we do when we're investigating the case. And Delisha, I remember you bringing me the first letter. Yes. And I said, he's manipulating you. You did. You say that to me about most of the prisoners that write to me because I always fall for the, well, maybe they're really sorry or, you know, maybe something went wrong in childhood. But you know what I keep coming back to? This young kid literally had it all. We've heard that before. Ronnie, he was voted most likely to succeed at San Joaquin Memorial High School. It's a, it's a wonderful school. It's almost like a prep school. Voted most likely to succeed. His family says he scored off the charts on IQ tests, literally genius level. He was going to an amazing university in Silicon Valley. He was in the honors program there. He had a huge inheritance waiting for him. Why? Why? And um, so sometimes in these cases, you kind of try to peel back the layers of the onion. And you have to wonder what was going on in the house. What right. was his childhood like? I will say people keep coming back to Dale. We are not 
ever going to victim shame on this program. But apparently Dale was very tough on Dana. Not so much on Tiffany, but he was kind of like, you're a man, you can do it. But that goes both ways because he was tough on him, but he also gave him everything and didn't have any consequences. Like one time I heard Dana wrecked his Mercedes and Dale went out, replaced it and gave him the same car and didn't want anyone to know. So it's like, but I will say that Dale was very motivated by money also. And he told Dana at a young age, money is important. Money is important. Uh, one of, in one of the interviews, one of Dale's employees at the aviation company, who hasn't been too nice about Dale over the years, he said some tough things about Dale. He said he was tough on, he was tough on Dana. But he said he went up to Dale and he was like, you work all the time, man. Like, what do you do for your free time? And Dale said, I read my bank books for fun. <laughs> so that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea. Dana started getting a $600 a week allowance when he was little. What? Yeah. So, I mean, he used to go into the classroom um, at lunch. Okay. He would go to nuts. school and he would hand out $100 bills to the classmates. Like, that's what he was known for. One of the guys said, one of his classmates said, he was walking through the mall. He barely knew Dana. And Dana was like, hey, man, you low on funds? You shopping? And just handed him money. So it's like this was his thing. Money was his thing. It was his identity. Wow. Yeah. And because you think about the upbringing. When you're from a farm community in Ohio. Right. You know hard work. And you usually instill that in your children. Right? I, I see it more today. Yeah. Right? We know uh, so many parents now want to be friends with their kids instead of being tough on their right. kids. But, well, you really just have to wonder about that. But, you know, from the get-go when you told me about this story, come on, it sounded like a hit. Yeah. Did detectives think so? You know, at first, when they walked into the crime scene, they obviously go in with no paradigms, they say. But I think they very quickly knew that because Joel had staged a robbery. Yeah. I'm doing air quotes right now because he basically ransacked some things in the house. But the only things missing were Glee's pearls, her pearl necklace. And there was an empty gun case that held a nine millimeter. It was not the murder weapon. Um, we believe the gun was gone, but Dale could have done something with it also. So it was pretty obvious this wasn't a real robbery. I mean, you think about how many things of value were in the house <laughs> and, you know. Come on, you got to make it look more. Yeah, you have to. You <laughs> like have a better to robbery than what you did. A little bit of a Come better on. job than that, yes. Uh, plus, if Joel was in it for the money, why wouldn't he take more? But where's he? I'm I'm guessing he's. Yes, he is still in prison, a different prison. Uh, he's in Mule Creek State Prison, different than Dana. Uh, the interesting thing here, though, is what happened to the third stooge, as they called him, Jack. He was able to just walk away, Ronnie. And I want you to take a guess at what he's up to today. I, I could only imagine, but let me say as someone who has worked um, for the federal law enforcement agency. I can't believe that they didn't get him on something. I know. Okay, let's just say this. If you live in the Fullerton area in California, you can hire Jack to be your lawyer. He is a 
lawyer. What? Practicing lawyer. Guess who else is a practicing lawyer? Ooh. Dana's girlfriend, Monica, in Sunnyvale. And she does not like it when people say her name associated with Dana, even though she stayed with him after the crime. And a lot of people believe she knew something. She had some bank accounts that were fishy, and everybody thinks she had something to do with it. She's also a lawyer. And when somebody contacted some of her clients and people that she works with at her firm and told them about the Dana Ewell connection, she sued them. What? She sued them. What can you sue for if it's like the truth, libel, the truth is the slander? Truth. But Doesn't here's, matter. here's the problem, and, and that is it, it never came to fruition. Right. But she did take it as far as she could, and she was angry. And it's like, okay, but that is part of your past. I mean, it just is. What type of law do you know? I don't know what kind of, I think she's involved in, I mean, I looked at the law firm's website. It's like called Zent Law Group, if anyone wants to look it up. Because she's still in Silicon Valley, so yeah. I'm guessing it has something to do with that. Well, I'm thinking instead of suing people for, <laughs> you know, dissing you because your ex-boyfriend is sitting behind prison for life, you use it as a marketing campaign. That's right. Well. Do, am, am I warped in my thinking? I was going to say, if it's criminal law, she right. didn't get him off. So, that, yeah. But she wasn't a lawyer yet. But he did help pay for her law school. He did help pay for her law school. But her dad Diego. was an FBI agent. Isn't it crazy? And he was one of Dana's biggest supporters. I mean, he testified in the trial. He was a big supporter. Definitely. So I need to ask you, um, are you going to keep writing to Dana? Which, by the way, you do snail mail. I'm a J-Pay person. He doesn't have J-Pay. <laughs> the people that? I'm writing to are all mass murderers, serial killers. They don't get J-Pay. Hmm. They're not like the petty criminals that only killed one person that we usually write to. No, they. I most of my criminals that I'm corresponding with do not have J-Pay. So I have mixed feelings about this because, of course, the nature of the letters, he's manipulating you. Mm -hmm. And as long as you know that going in, but... At the end of the day. So he maintains he's innocent, I'm sure, right? He doesn't like to talk about the murders. I'm going to continue, yes. I have a lot of questions, especially after I sat down with Dr. Holt. I have a lot more questions and maybe an approach that will work better. But I am interested, and you're right. I do want to see the best in people. I do want to believe the best in people. But there is one last thing I want to talk about. And that's the money trail. And when I learned this, I really got kind of sick about it. And that is that the money, the biggest beneficiary to the money to the state was Uncle Sam. Hmm. Let's be honest. He, like half of it went there. Right. And then it was split up between his aunt and uncles on Dale's side. And then his mom had a mother, Glee, who was in a nursing home. And Dana kind of inherited her estate, even though she was still alive, because her mom had been taking care of it. He drained the accounts and he moved his almost 90-year-old grandmother into another home and said he couldn't afford that home while he was using that money, also paying for Monica's law school. Ugh. And she didn't have money to get her hair done or go out to eat like she had been doing. And it makes me so sad to think about. Do you know he has mm. a... Um... He's on that website. Writeaprisoner.com. Yeah. yeah. Where he, it's like a dating have, site. He does have a nice profile oh, yeah. <laughs> laying out there. But oh, 
I don't know. I just I feel like he still has to have some type of use in society with a genius IQ, with the yeah. business acumen to get into a paper and make it before you've even made it. There's got to be something. There has to be something. I'm going to hope for the best, Ronnie. So we'll uh, stay tuned for your next letter from part two, Dana. And as we do each week, we want to leave with remembering the victims in this case, Dale, Glee, and Tiffany Ewell. We are thinking about you on this 30-year anniversary of your tragedy. We hope you are resting in peace.